If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Unbelievable show yesterday. I, I've heard from nobody who didn't like Green Day. And this is... It, it is still possible for two things to be true at once. That is that Green Day was amazing and that you can still think that stage should be for Canadian acts. We can have that debate. There is no question Green Day was amazing. I still like the idea of Canadian bands playing the Grey Cup halftime show, but doesn't take away from what Green Day did. They were amazing. And everybody that I've talked to, everybody I've heard from, quite loved them. It was a great show. And it was a great weekend. It was a great week. It was a great game. We'll be talking about the Grey Cup a little bit over the course of the next three hours. Scott Radley and for Scott Thompson, by the way. Today, Scott will be back. The other Scott will be back tomorrow. Uh, as I say, we will be talking about the halftime show and other things Grey Cup related over the next three hours here. We're going to chat about the economic statement that is due tomorrow. The Liberals are coming out with their fall economic statement. And by the sounds of it, this is not going to be all rainbows and lollipops. Let's put it that way. This, this might be a, a bit of a, a splash of cold economic water. They will try to position it to sound really nice. All politicians do of all parties, but this, it sounds like things could be pretty difficult. We are going to discuss that one. High rises, you know, we, we, in the city last week, there was a big debate about whether or not a 45 story building should be allowed. It got passed by the city, but you know, this is a, this is a discussion that is popping up now again, now and again about whether or not we should have these giant high rises in the city or, or should we be looking elsewhere, different ways to handle the po- the, the boom in population that's coming here. We'll talk about that one. This is a bizarre story. This next one we're going to get into next hour. For how many months here on the station and everywhere else, everywhere else, did we talk about the two Michaels who were being held by China and who were innocent victims of accusations that had nothing to do with reality? Well, now Michael Spavor is seeking a multi-million dollar settlement from Ottawa alleging that he unwittingly provided intelligence on North Korea to Canada and spy services. What does this say about what we were told and what we can trust and a lot of other things? It's a very complicated, a very confusing, and a very troubling story that's coming out that we'll talk about. The uh, school boards now dealing with what kind of free speech, how much free speech should they be giving to educators and students and those, especially around the whole Hamas-Israel thing. A lot of stuff that's being said, students walking out. Apparently, I think Westmount today had a walkout today and students. What is the level of free speech that we want schools and people who work for schools to have? Absolute? fully restricted? What is it? Well, get into that as well. And uh, so many more things. We've got uh, a, a gigantic show that uh, that will be coming up over the next three hours here. We also, don't forget, we have Hammerhead Trivia coming up, prizes to give away. 
You can win a pair of tickets to see the Glorious Suns at First Ontario Centre on December 1st. A couple of years ago, they played at the RBC Canadian Open. Remember, they played the same weekend that Florida Georgia Line played. They were terrific. So you can win a pair of tickets to go see them later on in the show. And your Twitter poll or X poll question today was last night's Grey Cup game in Hamilton. One of the best CFL championship games you've ever watched. Yes, no, or I didn't watch it. <laughs> there, there will be some people who will certainly fall into that category. I don't doubt it. But I think a lot of people, because it was in town, will have at least tuned in, at least given it a, a glance. But we'll see. Was last night's Great Cup game in Hamilton one of the best CFL championship games you've ever watched? Yes, no, or I did not watch it. Go to 900CHML on X or on Twitter, whichever you want to call it, and you can cast your vote there. I will tell you one funny thing. Behind, this is a, a glimpse behind the scenes of what was happening at the Grey Cup yesterday. So, and he doesn't know I'm going to mention this, but in the press box yesterday, as the game is going on, and it was a jammed press box, every seat was full, media from across the country. All of a sudden, about five or six seats down from me to my right, I was sitting at about the 40-yard line on the south end, so not the scoreboard at the other end. That's where I was lined up in the press box, and about five seats more, so down by about the 35-yard line. I hear this plaintiff pleating whimper from Bubba O'Neill from CHCH who somehow in the middle of the game, as he's trying to do some work, has done something to his phone so that the entire phone is now in Mandarin. <laughs> and he has no, no idea how to get it back from Chinese characters to English letters so he can, he can use it. This set off, if, if some of the stories in some of the media reports seem to have a gap of about five minutes of playing time midway through the third quarter. That's probably why, because a number of people were trying to figure out how to undo <laughs> a phone from being completely in Chinese. So that poor Bubba O'Neill, who, uh, you know, among his many talents, speaking Chinese, I don't know, Cantonese, Mandarin, doesn't matter. Not one of his talents. Uh, now, the good news is eventually it got resolved but I don't really know how, and I don't know how he got there. And I now live in a state of, I'm sort of carrying around a state of concern and fear that one of these days at a crucial moment when I need my phone more than I ever have before, I'm going to hit something and it's going to be in some other language that I will not know how to undo because he has no idea how it got there. He didn't go looking up Chinese characters and it popped up. It was there. And I don't know if anyone else has ever had this happen to them. We've all had technology that's gone haywire on us for sure. But has anyone else ever had their phone automatically switch over to a completely different language in the characters that you have no idea how to undo? Uh, yes. If your phone turns into full Mandarin and you don't speak Mandarin, that is a problem. Uh, call Bubba O'Neill. He now apparently knows how to turn a phone back from said language. I think, as I said, the Green Day was terrific. They, they did exactly, and we'll, we'll get from Eric what, uh, what he takes on this. Eric's, by the way, a music commentator and publicist. I probably should, you know, introduce him with his, <laughs> with his description there so that uh, people know what it is. But it, it seems as though, I think anyway, that we can now see that there is a formula for how to do a really good halftime show. And that formula was followed by Green Day, that you, you 
come up with a bunch of songs that everybody knows. The first one was not known by everybody, but it was, you know, not hard to get into. But you, you, you pick the songs that people know that are high energy. I don't think you go too hard into the ballad department of things. And you let her rip. And for as long as you have in your show, you keep the energy up. I mean, it helps, of course, to have the giant, I don't know if you could see it from TV. If you weren't at the game, I don't know if you were able to see this. They had at the top of the stage, these enormous fireballs shooting. And I mean, it looked like it was the, the blast furnaces, but in the stadium now. And in fact, before the game, when they were testing it, it looked like we didn't know what it was. We, we, there were like big brown smoke bombs and we didn't see the flames at first. I was like, what is burning? But no, it was, it was testing the fireballs. But it, what you do, you get a big show, you get lots of lights, you play a lot of high energy, high recognition, high, well-known songs. And you just blast through it. And, you know, it doesn't seem like it should be all that difficult. It doesn't, if you look back at now at the great halftime shows of the past, whether it's NFL or whether it's CFL. And I mean, look, I I am not, for example, I am not a big time rap guy. I don't, I I mean, I don't, I, there's some rap songs that are fine, but I'm not a, I wouldn't describe myself as a rap aficionado, but if you remember a couple of years ago when the Super Bowl was in Los Angeles and they brought in Eminem and Dr. Dre and 50 Cent and Snoop Dogg and, uh, I can't remember who the other one was anyway. And you just have like five or six songs that every single person knows And there's no break in between. You just roll one into the next one. That's how you do it. That's, that's how you make a halftime show go. The, the, the idea that you're going to introduce now Green Day kind of did sort of, I think, introduce a, a new song. It was not as well known. They got away with it, but I don't think you come on there and use this as an opportunity to explore too much new music. You certainly don't come in there and sing something that is ballady. You let her rip. What do you think? How do you think that the halftime show went? Because, you know, here's the other thing is that I, you know, my, my choice, if I had to pick a style of music, my choice would be rock and roll. If I had any choice of any kind of music that I would want to be, that, that would be me. So I may not be the ideal person or the equal, some other people may, if their taste in music lies elsewhere, they may have thought, oh, I'm not sure, but I'd love to know what you thought. Now, this text number here is 905-645-3221. Send us a text. Was, was this, I thought they were terrific. Did you share that? Even if that kind of music, even if rock music, hard rock loud rock, old school rock and roll, even if that's not necessarily your flavor. What did you think about that one? And the other thing, as I said, at the top of the show, that I think proves that two things can be correct and two things can be true at the same time. I still do believe that the Grey Cup halftime show stage should be used for a Canadian act. And we were talking in the press 
box last night, the media box last night, uh, we were talking about, well, okay, if you don't have a Canadian band that is as big as Green Day, let's say, because, you know, Green Day was huge. And, and once again, I think Green Day did amazing. It, two things that I say can be true at once. Green Day can be fantastic and a terrific choice. It can also be true that I think that stage should be for Canadian acts. But what if you don't have a band? Like Rush is no longer together because Neil Peart died. Celine Dion, probably not going to do it. She did it once upon a time, a hundred years ago. Um, Drake, I don't know if Drake is, I don't know if Drake is going to be um, wanting to do the Grey Cup halftime show. Um, you know, so what do you do? Well, here was the suggestion that we came up with. You two, remember Ringo Starr had his all-star band that they used to do for ever. He would get guys, you know, Tom Petty and a bunch of other people and they would all, Burton Cummings did it for a while with them. And you get five or six huge musical stars, you get them together and they each play in each other in one band and play some of each other's songs. You could do that. That would be a very cool halftime show. That would be very cool to get Getty Lee and... Brian Adams and The Weeknd and I don't know who's uh, 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 Alanis Morissette or, you know, pick, I don't care. What, does it matter the genre? Pick your Canadian artists that would be amazing world-class Canadian artists and put four or five of them on the stage in a band, put a few backup musicians with them and have have them do each other's music or even some other Canadian, great Canadian songs that they've given a new twist to. That would be, I don't know. I, I know that the idea is that you're supposed to have a big name band. I think that would be awesome. I, I, how, how about if you had all these great Canadian legends doing tragically hip songs for halftime show with their own spin on it or Gordon Lightfoot songs, but with their own, I mean, you get what I'm going at. I think there's, I think there is a possibility for something pretty cool that could be done. <laughs> During the halftime show yesterday, lots of fireballs, lots of fireworks. Uh, that was interesting because it's, um, it was just a couple days before that at city council, there was a discussion about whether or not on Canada day, when the city does its traditional Canada day show, whether the fireworks should be put aside in favor of maybe a laser show or a drone show or something that is different because of the impact of noise and the environment of fireworks. Well, last week we had one of the people who was opposed to that, Matt Francis on Ward 5 Councillor talking about it. We had asked uh, Councillor Narendra Nan from Ward 3 who has brought the motion forward to join us. She couldn't then, but she can now and we wanted to bring her on. Uh, Ward 3 Councillor Narendra Nan. Uh, Councillor, thanks for doing this today. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. Pleasure to join this afternoon. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Because as I say, we wanted to hear the the thought behind it and, and a bit of a bigger picture about whether, um, is this just hopefully going to be, hopefully for those who support it, is this just going to be for Canada Day fireworks or is there a thought that eventually this will be all fireworks in the city? So on the bigger picture, it, it has been clearly documented in not only medical journals coming out of the United States at Columbia University, NYU, uh, more and more uh, medical journals are also publishing data around toxicology and what is leading to uh, the particulate matter that we often breathe in. And many Hamiltonians know that I've been 
you know, raising up the cause around improving our air quality as per it contains to the carcinogens that are in our air that we breathe in from the steel industry. But in terms of cleaning up our own house, uh, the city of Hamilton is also responsible for contributing to air quality, and that is around our fireworks displays. And it is those fireworks, um, as well as the ones that you saw at the halftime show, which was a great show, great game. Um, and although folks are only exposed to the substances for a short time, which makes a lot of people feel like, ah, it's nothing to worry about, actual study and data is showing that we're, we end up ingesting much more toxins in the pollutant in that short amount of time than we do breathe in on a daily level. So we end up breathing in more in that five-minute or 15-minute fireworks display in terms of toxins that are actually changing the human cellular structure inside of us compared to what we breathe in on a daily level. That is alarming. And so what I'm hoping to do with this motion is have staff bring back a feasibility report, let us know what's it going to take for us to look for healthier options that have less, less of a human health impact, as well as those secondary impacts that we also need to be considering in terms of the wildlife and uh, the animals in the area as well. Would this then be uh, would this be a, a, a first step towards again uh, eventually wanting to get rid of fireworks altogether in the city? It's step one to find out what alternatives are out there that we can we can bring online and uh, test out for Canada Day, and from there, then use our evidence based decision making to make a decision about making the quality of our air and the quality of those events. Equally fun, but less harmful. What about the idea that, you know, if people go to a fireworks show, they have chosen to be there. And so they don't have to be there if they don't want the air quality issues. But, you know, they like a lot of things where people do things that may not be the healthiest for them, drinking or smoking pot or being around cars that are idling or like there's lots of different things. What about, you know what, people choose to do this. So let's let them do it. But I don't think people know what they're breathing when we go to fireworks displays. It wasn't until I started looking into this issue that I actually came to understand that the, we're talking about some serious toxins here. God, like they change your human cellular makeup in a matter of 15 minutes of exposure. We're talking cancer. We're talking other respiratory issues. We're talking in an environment and in an era where our respiratory conditions and health is under attack from viruses as well as exposure to wildfire smoke, as well as, you know, the rates of asthma in this city alone. Um, those are things that we have to be responsible for. So for me, it made me really ca- like be cautious about what does next year's Canada need to look like for my family? What am I going to be knowingly exposing my child to? Um, and maybe this is a little bit more personal for me from the fact that I grew up with respiratory conditions my entire Um, childhood and young adult life. And it's taken me a long time to heal from that. And so I'm much more conscious of that, um, not only as a city councillor, but more importantly, as a um, public health committee member as well. Have you got a sense of what the support is on council? Have you got a sense of whether there's a lot of councillors who are on board? Yeah. Uh, So when it came to General Issues Committee last Wednesday, it passed uh, at a nine to five vote. So I don't have any concerns that it'll be ratified at council this Wednesday. But it, okay, but my understanding was the motion was to have staff explore what 
would be involved, but it wasn't necessarily to not have fireworks. So there's still a question of whether. Mm-hmm. Or, or what to is clarify, the it's a it's a it's a dual part motion. Okay. Part one is for staff to come back with a feasibility report of alternatives to fireworks for the Canada Day spectacle show, and part two is to include a scoring strategy. So that when we're looking for a request for proposal for a five-year Canada Day producer contract, that it includes scoring mechanisms that look at uh, ways in which to put together an incredible show uh, that is much more responsive to our climate, much more responsive to our biodiversity, and much more responsive to public health priorities. And so that'll give us an opportunity then as council to make, uh, as well as the city and our staff, to make informed decisions. Um, You know, it's my understanding that the city of Niagara is also looking at alternatives now for the incredible show, multi-day festival Mm -hmm. that they have with their fireworks over the falls, uh, given the scale and magnitude of the research that's coming out through medical journals these days. We only have a few seconds left here, but I know you just said that this would be a first step. Was there any thought when you brought the motion to right away just say, let's just vote on banning fireworks in the city? No, not on my end. Uh, I am much more interested in evidence-based decision-making, and I'm much more interested in making sure that my council colleagues around the table understand what we're making decisions about and why. That is uh, Ward 3, Councillor Narinder Nain. Uh, the vote will be uh, coming... Sorry, what day was the vote coming up again? Well, it's already passed 9 to 5 at committee, uh, General Issues Committee, and they'll be ratified at council this Wednesday. This Wednesday. There you go. That's what I, that's what I thought you yeah. said. Uh, Narendra Nan, Ward 3 Council, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. No worries. Pleasure. Take care. It's been well documented uh, over the years, well, well documented that, well, now whether we believe these numbers or not is a different story, but it's been well documented that somehow by the year 2050 or thereabouts, there will be... We're told 230,000 new people living in the city of Hamilton. That's a, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people in a not very long period of time. And so the question becomes, where do they go? Well, you know, because you've been listening, you've been paying attention over the last number of weeks, that we had a, a, a discussion, city council had a discussion about a big 45-story new building down on the waterfront. Lots of controversy around that. We have had discussions about buildings up on the mountain, big condo, residential, huge development. Lots of controversy around that. We've had discussions about large buildings down by uh, York and Dundurn area. Lots of controversy around that. Every time it seems somebody proposes a giant development, there is all kinds of controversy. And the reason is, well, there's not going to be parking or there's the streets are going to be too busy or there's going to be no sunshine. There's going to be too much shade. There's going to be wind tunnels created. All the, look, and all of these things, I have absolutely no doubt that there is legitimacy to. I'm not suggesting that if you put up a 45 story building, that somehow it doesn't affect things. But if we are going to be bringing in 230,000 people, Where are we going to put them? Well, let's back up a little bit more because according to the city's planning department, we currently have enough residential land 
in the city boundaries, because remember, the urban boundary is frozen. We currently have enough residential land to accommodate around 40,000 new homes. And if you say, okay, well, that's two and a half people per home, give or take, we're talking about 100,000 people. So we have room for about 100,000 people within the city. Remember, 230,000 is what we have to accommodate. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that if every time there is a large development that's proposed, it gets fought? that it gets to be a controversy, that we don't want it in our neighborhood, that we don't want the development to be near us. I mean, we're all, look, we're all fine. We are all totally fine with people building giant condos far away from us, for the most part. Some people have a thing with the waterfront. I get that. But for the most part, we don't mind so much when a giant condo is being built somewhere else, but if it's in our neighborhood, yeah, we have a problem with that. So how are we going to do this if we don't want, every time that someone proposes that we're going to build a unit that can build, that, you know, that can put in a few hundred units, that we get into a fight about it and slow it down and get upset with City Hall. How are we going to do that? Well, let me, uh, let me bring in someone who might know the answer to this. Maddie Simiotechi is director of the Infrastructure Institute and professor of geography and planning at the University of Toronto. Maddie, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, hi, Scott. Well, we were just talking about, you know, every time it seems someone in Hamilton, a developer comes forward with an idea to build a high rise, people get upset about this and fight it, but it seems as though with the space that we have and the number of people who we're expecting to move here, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of other options other than to be building up and considerably up. Yeah, the way our cities are growing right now, there's really only two ways this can go. One is we grow outwards, uh, and that pushes us out into our green belts, into some of uh, the best farmland, into ecologically sensitive uh, areas, and creates uh, dreadful commutes for people, uh, or we can intensify and go upwards. And I think often when we think about intensification, what comes to mind is very tall, high-rise buildings. And certainly there are going to be some nodes where that happens. But in other cases, we can be gently intensifying where uh, we turn single-family uh, areas. Uh, we encourage people to gently intensify and put very small um, laneway suites or garden suites in their backyards, or maybe an additional floor at a multiplex. Uh, or we can have what's often called the missing middle on some of our main avenues, where uh, instead of a one or two story building, maybe we have a four or five story mm. building. So even though this maybe brings to mind uh, a sea of tall uh, high rises, that's not the only form that we can use to intensify. It's so interesting though, that you mentioned the, the, you know, the building a duplex or a quadplex or putting another flat or something in there, because I, I mean, as much as people have been grumbling at times about these high rises, I still think that if the day comes that you live in a neighborhood, let's say you live near McMaster, which would be kind of probably, I'm guessing one of the places where would be, it, it would make a lot of sense to put in a number of units in a home now because you've got students. I think if someone, if you've bought a house in a neighborhood that you bought it there because it was quieter, you bought it there because there weren't all these people and suddenly it becomes a dense area where homes are putting two or three units in there. I think people are going to freak out more than if they have the tall buildings. 
Well, our neighborhoods are already starting to change. And in many cases, actually, our single family home neighborhoods are shrinking. And as they shrink, what's also happening is a lot of the retail that people have come to depend on uh, and really appreciate it. It's no longer financially viable. And a lot of the public services that people have come to rely on, for example, public transit, are also uh, no longer viable. So actually bringing new people in is really important. And also it may be their children that are looking for places to live who have increasingly been priced out of the market and need a place to live or uh, a grandparent. So really our communities are changing. And I see this as actually a way to bring vitality uh, back to neighborhoods that have often stalled as they've, they've shrunk in some of the most prime uh, locations in our cities. Do you believe, though, that whether it's Hamilton or whether it's elsewhere, that counselors are go, uh, counselors want to go down that path? Because, I mean, they, depending on what ward they represent, they probably are going to get big time blowback depending on what kind of things are being proposed. It's been really varied, actually. There has been a lot of blowback. Uh, there's been some nimbyism on this. Uh, there's been some uh, legitimate questions about uh, parking and other uh, concerns that do have to be addressed. We need to make sure that these neighborhoods uh, work. But we've also seen a lot more interest from a lot of councillors to say, actually, my neighborhood does need to grow. We do have more space. This is a way to bring affordability back to a community that has become increasingly unaffordable and where uh, many of my constituents, their children, their elders can't afford to live anymore. So really, actually, this is a way of bringing back and, and creating something new that's actually uh, much more viable and vibrant uh, than what's there today. So this is a political challenge, and we've seen the province step into this and try to encourage intensification. Uh, you've seen the federal government incentivizing municipalities to encourage intens- intensification. So uh, this is coming, and it's just a matter of uh, how uh, the politics are going to play out uh, to see it through. Is it essential that if you do allow for intensification, that it be literally everywhere in the city, or can you pick and choose spots where it would be allowed? What we've often seen so far is this pattern of tall and sprawl, where on any sites uh, that can go dense, people are going extremely dense, and then otherwise, much of our cities have been left unchanged. And unchanged, and in some cases, this is creating real uh, inequity that uh, communities that either uh, have the power and resources uh, to fight uh, intensification or Uh, or perhaps are not all that well uh, set up for it, they've been able to see very little change. And so this is creating inequities in our cities. And I think we do need to make sure that growth is being equally spread and that all are taking uh, and and seeing the benefits of this vitality that comes along with uh, uh, smart and uh, uh, intentional and inclusive uh, intensification. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Zero degrees outside. Bulk up. Well, maybe not bulk up. That's uh, bundle up. If you bulk up, it's going to take you longer than right now to bulk up. That's a whole different thing. Yesterday, though, you might have wanted to bulk up or bundle up if you were at the Grey Cup game. And, it, you know, the, the, the result led to a very interesting question that I think a lot of people are going to be debating. They already have started debating this. If you watch the game, we're not talking about the halftime show. That's a different debate. We're talking about the, what is our Twitter poll question today or our X poll was, was the game yesterday was last night's great cup game in Hamilton. One of the best CFL championship games you've ever watched. Yes, no, or I didn't watch it. Go cast your vote there. But on a broader note, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who by the way, 
have something very much in common with the Hamilton Ticats. You may recall that it was 1999 is the last time the Hamilton Ticats won a Grey Cup. It has been a long time. It has been a long time since the Ticats won a Grey Cup. What? The Winnipeg Blue Bombers went 29 years. Now, they've been there four times, but they were waited for a long, long time. Question is now, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers have been there four times in a row, including last night. They won the first two, they lost the next two. What do we call that? Some people would say, well, that's a dynasty. Some people say, well, it's not a dynasty because they didn't win all four. They lost two. That's dynastic or that's great. What, what, what are the Winnipeg Blue Bombers right now? This version of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Let's bring in Justin Dunk. He is from Three Down Nation. Uh, you would have seen him on Sportsnet last night talking about the Grey Cup. Justin, how are you? Doing well, buddy. What about you? I am doing okay, thank you. My ears are cleaned out thanks to Green Day, which is all good. And uh, here we go. So what do we make of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers? I, I, had they won this, I think probably nobody questions the idea of dynasty. But when you've been there four times and won twice, are they a dynasty or what are they? I don't think they're a dynasty. You got to win, but I think they are a really good football team that plays at an exceptionally high level in the regular season. But the last two times in the Grey Cup, and I mean, you could even argue the last two West Finals, they haven't really played to the level that this team has played at consistently in the regular season. The last two years, they're 31 and 9 in the regular season, but they get in the playoffs in these one game situations and preparation and focus and all that kind of stuff kind of changes things. And I really think Zach Caleros needs to be better, especially in the Grey Cup games. And if he was, there's a potential here to be talking about a legitimate dynasty that's won four straight in a row, Scott. Because let's remember, they lost this game by a very tight score, last second touchdown. And they lost the game last year in Regina, the 109th Grey Cup when Robbie Smith blocked a potential game-winning field goal. We'll never know if it was going to go in or go wide, but this team is that close. Like, we're talking about inches. From three. Yeah, no, but the flip side of that is that you go back one more year, so you go back to uh, uh, 2021 when they played against Hamilton. They could have lost that game in overtime, and now they've lost three in a row in the Grey Cup, and now it's a whole different discussion. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, that's the great thing about football and sports in general is that it can come down to one play or moment, and in this case, one game. And I think that's the real difference with football compared to some of the other major sports in North America, baseball, hockey, basketball. Those have series. I think in a series, the Bombers would probably beat Montreal, but in a one-game, one-off, sudden-death situation, you never really know. And we're talking about inches that can define legacy. Like we're really inches away from the Bombers potentially winning four great cups in a row or three out of four or however you put it. And I think your point is valid that, yeah, maybe they could have lost that one in 2021 if that Jeremiah Masoli pass was caught. I think it was, was it Jalen Acklin who almost got his hands yes, on it? Yes, yep, yep, yeah, dropped it. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, well, I, the funny thing about this though is there are certain coaches and certain players in any sport on any team who, when things don't go right for their team, we're talking team sports, it doesn't work obviously if you're a golfer or a tennis player and you're by yourself, but in team sports, there are certain coaches and players who, if things don't go right, you know that the entire weight of the world is going to crash down on them and they are going to be blamed. Somehow it seems that Mike O'Shea 
and you mentioned Zach Caleros, both don't seem to get much blame. At least I don't hear much blame pointed at them for this. Is that because they don't deserve it? Or is that because they're really good guys and nobody wants to blame them? Or is that because the success they have in the regular season, people don't think they should be blamed? Why do they dodge it? I think it's kind of the latter two points, right? Both are really good guys publicly that have a clean persona and that value culture and leadership really even above winning. I know winning in pro sports is the ultimate thing, but Mike O'Shea strongly believes that you can't win without that culture. So that's why he has it above it. And I think part of the reason that they don't necessarily get blamed is because this team has been so good in the regular season. The fact that they've gotten to four straight great cups, like they have set a extremely high standard year in and year out now. And I think that is the issue. And I'll take you back to the voting for Zach Caleros in terms of being his own team's MLP. He has set this ridiculously high standard in the regular season. And when he meets those numbers, which he did in 2023, that's not getting good enough to get him even out of his own team in an MLP award. So I think there's a lot of factors here. But in reality, O'Shea and Caleros should have made some better decisions in that game last night. Namely, the interception that Claros threw in the back of the end zone trying to force a corner route to Kenny Lawler gets picked off. He had Nick Dembski wide open in the flat. It's easy to say in hindsight. And O'Shea deciding to play Dalton Schoen and Adam Big Hill, and especially Big Hill, got exposed a couple of times in coverage, and Shane Goche looked like a much better linebacker. So I do think that those guys, and they'll take it upon themselves, will shoulder some of the blame. We saw Caleros in tears last night. That's how close he feels to this group mm. of bombers. And both those two guys had been uh, injured coming in. Yeah, I, I, we got to run, but I don't somehow think, and maybe it's a Hamilton thing, maybe it's something else, I don't somehow think that if Orlando Steinauer was in two great cups and lost both in close last-second decisions with other things, I don't think that he'd be dodging the bullets. <laughs> somehow I think the arrows would be flying. Just a thought. I think you're probably right. And I don't know. I mean, and he's a decent, he's a good guy too. I don't, it's just, it's weird how some people are able to dance around that stuff and other people wear it in the biggest way. And we'll see, maybe in time, maybe in retrospect, you know, there will be more criticism of O'Shea and Caleros, but it doesn't seem to be the case right now. We have seen uh, here in Hamilton, but also elsewhere around the province, school boards now trying to figure out what they are supposed to do as far as allowing people in their employ comment on what's happening in the Middle East. This, of course, you know, we could talk about comment on anything, but what's happening in the Middle East, clearly the hottest of hot button issues, the thing that is setting people off as far as looking at what someone says, what someone else says, it's become a huge issue. And it's not just, I mean, it's an issue of free speech versus censorship, uh, ostensibly. It's a free speech, uh, uh, it's an issue of which side someone is going to be taking. How do you represent students who are maybe Muslim or have Palestinian family or people over there versus Jewish. It's a, it is honestly, it's a mess, but what are school boards supposed to do with this? Tell everyone just to shut it down and don't say a word or say, no, say what you need to say and we'll sort it out after. Uh, Kathy Bickmore 
is a professor of curriculum and pedagogy and comparative international development in education with the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. She joins us now. Kathy, thank you for doing this. You're welcome. I really Hi. appreciate you joining because this is such a, this is such a difficult one. I tend to, well, almost exclusively say, you know, people should be able to say what they want to say. Free speech, free expression is essential. And then on the other hand, I do acknowledge that if I'm a student at a school and let's say my principal says something that flies in the face and, and goes against if I'm Jewish and they say something that would make me feel not welcome, that's a tough spot. What are school boards supposed to do about this? You know what? What schools are supposed to be the best at is education. And so the bottom line is not either free speech or censorship. It really is education. Now, that makes it sound a little too easy, I admit. Uh, What I mean is people are better at things if they practice when they're smaller problems. So with conflict resolution and peacemaking, we don't start with the most difficult conflict and then figure out how to talk to each other. We need to build in inclusion, equity, effective peacemaking when incidents happen that do cause harm uh, and so forth. But inclusion can't just mean conflict avoidance because no one would learn. I, it's a very, it's we have a... some pretty good evidence about other kinds of I've been hearing people calling this zero tolerance, you know, zero zero tolerance for intolerance. But school boards and schools have a have a clear record that zero tolerance didn't work with other kinds of conflicts either. That you can't really solve human relationship problems with punishment. Uh, agreed. Agreed. The challenge that I would, the challenge or the point that I would, I would love, I see, this is what I wish the case was. I wish that people who work for school boards understanding that you are dealing with children. And so, and children who are under your care or under your control is not the right word, but under your leadership, I wish that people who work for school boards would simply use their wisdom and say, I have the right to free speech but I'm not necessarily going to exercise it right now because I understand what me sending out an aggressive tweet or a tweet that's going to offend somebody. I'm going to choose to exercise my free speech by not saying what I might want to say, because right now this is not the time in my position, but I just don't see that happening a lot. I think you have a point that many of us who care, and the good news about all this conflict is that it shows how much people care about the rest of the world and the violence that they're coping with, which is horrid, but also about schools. And that's the good news. If we stop with the laudable idea that that as a speaker, whether I'm a student or a teacher, I should bite my tongue, stop and think before I speak. That's good. But it's only the beginning because it's about stopping the conversation 
And what people are showing us with their words and their deeds is that they're upset and they need to talk about this. And what happens if schools become a place where the issues people care about most can't be discussed? And, and that's so a very, that's, a, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent, I, th- I agree with you 100%. That's a fantastic point. But I just, again, I come back to the idea that we're dealing with, it's not you and your colleagues who are, you know, very learned, educated people. You're talking about kids. I would, I would wish that in this case, that would be brought to the classroom for a fair and balanced discussion rather than trustees or principals or teachers going on social media, which is an absolute swamp and wasteland and dropping their thoughts there. To me, that is irresponsible. It's complicated. I, I see your point. I do agree that social media has a tendency to escalate conflicts even faster than they otherwise would. But social media is part of our culture now. And it even is. More for the young people than for us older people. And so in the end, again, it's about what can we do once an issue arises that people are upset about? I don't feel as if it's my expertise to really talk so much about what the administrators should do about enforcing the policies that they already have. But I do think that classroom teachers need and deserve a lot more support for carrying those conversations, I'll say parts of those conversations, into their classrooms in a more gentle, developmental, step-by-step kind of way, starting with listening, starting with inclusion, those kinds of things. Even with very small kids, it's not that we can't talk about any of this. It's that we have to find the aspects of these conflicts that we can talk about because we don't want kids to decide that school is irrelevant and that the things they care about can't be discussed. We want them to be able to heal their relationships with one another after people get hurt. Excellent Because almost no matter what you say in this conflict, people may well feel hurt. Excellent and that's point. Important. And we do know some things about restorative approaches to peacemaking to help people recognize that what they said or posted hurt somebody and to take some responsibility for repairing the situation. That we is, need uh, to apply that in this situation. Whereas if we turn it into a power struggle with the upper administration whose job it is to stop or censor, as you put it, uh, or punish people for speaking, we're never going to learn how to talk to each other. That is true. We are going to change on the fly here and do something we've never done before in the afternoon, I don't think. And I have brought Dave Woodard from the newsroom into the newsroom. Jen Watson McQueen is into the newsroom, from the newsroom into the studio for a spontaneous 
Roundtable. Brightest conversation in Hamilton? It could be. Yeah, we do that in the evenings. Uh, let's let's call it that. The the almost brightest. The, a- oh. the brightest afternoon. <laughs> the brightest afternoon conversation in Hamilton Radio. Absolutely. We do that in the Friday evening show. But uh, thank you for jumping in on this one. And Dave, you were at, uh, you're, you're looking a little bleary because you mm. were at the Grey Cup yesterday. Have you thawed out yet at least? <laughs> It wasn't that bad. It no? wasn't that cold. I uh, it was uh, it was a great game. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it was. Um, had you been to one before? I, that was my first. Actually, I had picked missed, a good one. I'd missed the twenty twenty one one uh, one, and of course, in ninety eight, I would have been a little too young to be able to afford those tickets. Yeah, ninety six. Oh no, ninety six though. Do you know what happened in ninety six with what the I, tickets? What's that? Ticket sales were not good. And so about a day before, if you went to Tim Hortons and bought a coffee, oh. you could buy a Grey Cup ticket for $75. Come on. Yeah. We were talking about that the other day. Wow. And uh, Ron Foxcroft, who was involved, called in and said, yeah, it was a $75 ticket if you bought a coffee back Jeez. then just to try and... And it ended up being one of the greatest... Anyone who went... One of the greatest Grey Cup games ever. Huge Blizzard, mm, 43, yeah. 37, Flutie and McManus. The, and the, the catch off the toe. Exi- yeah. Yep. No, yeah, everything. So, so Jan, Dave was there. He'll jump in on this one in a second. One thing I always wonder, it was a great time. The events were fantastic. The party was great. The concerts were great. The halftime show was great. The game was fantastic. But we're, there's always this question. Do you believe that hosting something like this boosts Hamilton in some tangible way. It brought people in for this week. There's no question. People were here. We saw tons of people from Winnipeg, tons from Montreal. But after this last week is over, do you think that hosting a Grey Cup and having a great event boosts Hamilton's profile, its tourist trade, its business, anything? Do you think it has any residual effects? Well, I mean, I think just for pride alone, is is more than enough, you know, just to showcase, you know, what Hamilton's all about and all the people and all the awesome things that we have. And like, you know, the, the stadium looked great and everything else. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't know the numbers, what they'll be, but I do know I have friends who um, went down, they live in Hamilton and they stayed downtown for the whole weekend. They had uh, tickets to the game and they took in the whole weekend festivities and they live here and they went down. And stayed, uh, can you not hear me? No, you go ahead. Yeah, you yeah. can hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. <laughs> yeah, they stayed downtown and they didn't have to, but they were just, we want to take it all in. And they're local, they're Hamiltonians, but you know, they, uh, so I don't know. I think I, I'm sure the numbers uh, have yet to come out, but I think just from a, a pride. From a pride perspective, A pride perspective sure. alone, um, whether no- or not anybody else thinks we look good or not, I think everybody here had a great time and that's all that matters. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, Jen's point about it, you know, being a great thing for pride, it, no question Hamilton has, and this is, you know, anyone around here probably knows this. I don't think I break any news, Dave, but mm. Hamilton has a reputation around the country and it's not always a glamorous one. Yeah, I think... It, and when you have something like this, yeah. I whether it helps business-wise, we'll get to that. I yeah. do think the appearances and the way things look and the way it goes off. I, I, I don't think that can hurt. No, I don't think it does. And I think a lot of people kind of come away from a week like this uh, because it's more than just a football game. 
right? It's a it's a it's a it's a cultural experience, right? So we have things. Uh, we have the Green Day concert. People are coming for that. You have the team parties that are going on. People are coming into town for that. So it's it's more than just a sports game that people kind of go to and go. Oh, it was a great game. They come in and see the the cultural event that it is, and because you're seeing that, you're seeing other things about the city. Now, one of the things I also noticed that a lot of the things that we've become accustomed to seeing, they were kind of maybe pushed aside a little bit. Like? I noticed, well, uh, I was uh, in behind uh, the city hall parking lot. I noticed that there were not a whole lot of tents there uh, this time around. I don't know if that had anything to do with it or whether they or were not, shoved away. They were, they may up have and... been there. There was a lot of people kind of, you know, stirring around uh, Whitehern, uh, but there were no tents. So I, I don't know if it's one of those things that they did that so that people who came to the city uh, who were going to some of the events, especially downtown, were kind of like, okay, it's not a bad, you know, it looks great. There's there's not a, any of these problems that we see in the media. So clearly they must not exist. Mm. I just, I, I, I wonder, Jen, if anybody who's watching that game on TV, and it looked terrific. Like I, I went home last night and I'd been down there, but I went home and watched a bunch of it on the replay to see how it looked. It looked amazing. But I wonder if anybody who's living in Edmonton or Halifax or Vancouver or whatever says, man, I got to go visit Hamilton because that yeah. looked amazing. <laughs> and, and ultimately, I think that's what you would want. I just don't know if that's a realistic expectation. No, I, I, I wouldn't think that either. I mean, you know, where where was the last Grey Cup? Not 21. Wait, what year is it? 23. <laughs> My sister went to the Grey Cup in 2019 out to Winnipeg, and it was just to go for the experience, not because I want to go to Winnipeg, you know, like. Well, right. I don't know that after that Grey Cup or even after one in Regina, which are, you know, those Grey Cups are amazing. Winnipeg and yeah. Regina are the, I've, you know, I've many times said they're the beating heartbeat of the CFL. You put a Grey Cup there, it's an event. But I don't know that anyone, when that's done, says, I got to go and hang out at the corner of Portage and Maine in February. <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah. I don't think, I think maybe you, Dave, draw people for the next time you host a big event, maybe, maybe yeah. if the Junos are here or something, people say, oh, Hamilton does a good job with this. And that's the thing. I think Hamilton puts on a lot of events during a year that we don't necessarily get a whole lot of people coming from outside of the area too, right? I mean, the the Carrie Underwood concert on Friday, you didn't get a lot of people, or at least I didn't notice a lot of people from Toronto coming in, but maybe that starts to happen because the event that we put on this weekend was a fantastic show of what Hamilton is. I think that Hamilton really lucked out in a sense because I, I Toronto should have been in that game. Toronto was the best team in the CFL all year, but if Toronto wins, I think you get a bunch of people from Toronto who snatch up tickets for the game, but I don't know how many people from Toronto come during the week beforehand for all the parties and stuff. The fact that Montreal, you have, it's, it's a commitment to get here. You're not just coming the day of the game and certainly Winnipeg. So you probably had way more people in the city all week than you would have if it had been Toronto or even, I hate to say it, even Hamilton. Absolutely. I don't think I've ever seen anybody in a, in a Winnipeg Blue Bomber uh, jersey before this weekend. And, nope. and now there was a lot of them. <laughs> The Technical Difficulties Roundtable here on <laughs> Hamilton Today. Dave Woodard in studio, Jen McQueen in studio. If you're just joining us, yeah, it, yes, it has been one of those days where the gremlins have taken over the building. And so this is great, though, because it's one of the times I get to yank in the two stars of our newsroom, the two mm. stars of the oh, CHML yeah. news galaxy. <laughs> 
and say, hey, let's uh, not just read stuff. Let's, you know, see what you're all about and hear your the thoughts stars, on stuff. The stars of the newsroom afternoon. Well, that's... Stars, eh? <laughs> so, Dave, we... Um, there is uh, a birthday today, a very famous okay. birthday today. Joe Biden turns 81 years old today. Wow. Uh, Joe Biden strikes me that he appears to be closer to 115. <laughs> he, he just, he is, he was not that old until about five years ago. And all of a sudden he just has become, let's be honest. I mean, it's not about politics. It's just, he is an old, old man right now. And if he runs and he says he is in the next election next year and wins, he will be wrapping up his second term at 86 years old and he's already an old 81. This has led to a lot of people in the States with Nancy Pelosi, with Donald Trump, with him, with others. And we can apply it, I think, to this country as well. Should there be an age limit? On politicians. You know, it's interesting, uh, especially when it comes to the presidency, they age more as well. If you've seen pictures of, you know, George W. Bush pre his election and then after, or Barack Obama. Barack Obama was all dark hair before sure. and gray when he left. Absolutely. So it's one of those things that it, it, it ages you considerably. Um, but it, that being said, I think that there's some merit to having an age limit when it comes to politics. I think, you know, in Canada, we have it for senators. We have it for judges. I think that it makes sense that, you know, if you, if you have um, a certain job, you can't be uh, a certain. I don't want to sound ageist at the same time, I was just but it's, say it's that. one of those things that maybe it's it's a uh, it's something that that needs to happen. Jen, you said you know you don't want to, and, and Dave was just saying you don't want to be ageist. No, but. The reality is while some people may be totally fine, like totally on the ball at 90, others may not be. Yeah. And do you need to, because these jobs are so important, do you need to say, I'm not saying that you're necessarily not going to be in peak mental form at that point, but we have to put rules in to make sure that whoever's doing that is okay. Yeah. And not even from that perspective, but I think just as society evolves. You know what I mean? Like things change, people, cha uh, you know, ways of doing things, ways of thinking changes. If you got somebody who's, you know, almost 90 years old in the top job, I mean, he's from a completely different generation and ways of doing things. And, you know, they don't necessarily always keep up with the times. And that's, that's true. Important. But the flip side is you could say, but as health care improves and diet improves and technology and science improves at, at 80 So let's or have a robot for a president. No, but at 85, no. you may be better in better position than you were, than somebody was at 65, no. 50 years ago. Maybe. I think yeah, to me anyways, I, I think if you look at it uh, from a perspective of uh, if you were hiring somebody or if there was somebody who um, you had dealing with your finances, if you had the chance to, to hire Warren Buffett to do your finances. I'd be okay with that. Right. Regardless of how old he is because he knows his stuff. So I think it, it really comes down to an issue of whether or not they're good at what they do. But Dave, and yes, if Warren Buffett offered to do my finances, I would probably be all over it. But I don't know how old Warren Buffett is. He's got to be in his late eighties by now, mid eighties anyway. Sure. There is simple science, simple statistics would say there's a chance 
Warren Buffett could die in the next few years. We're not rooting for him to go, but there's right. a chance he could. And then what do you have behind him? Who's his successor who's now right. handling my money? I'm great with Warren Buffett taking it. I don't want Jimmy Buffett <laughs> doing it, right? So, Jan, it becomes the thing well, of- he's not going to do it. Well, we know that. But I just, <laughs> I look at it and I just think to myself, is there a- is there a fair way to say, like, I don't think we should cut it off at 65. No. Winston Churchill was 65 in World War II. He did a pretty good job. So, you know, it's not like at that age, but is there a point? Or if we don't say there should be an age limit, that there has to be a public, if you're going to run, you have to engage in a public mental health acuity test that if you fail and it's a rigid test and if you fail, you have to pull out then, but I don't know that anybody wants to do that and no. have some doctor publicly say you've lost it. Well, and what doctor, who's going to administer the test? Is the doctor going to be a Democrat? Is the doctor going to be a Republican? Is it going to be, It would have to be know? a panel of some kind, but yeah. you're right. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a very be all difficult. Subjective. It would be, but yeah, Dave, I mean, I don't, I, again, if it's not age, Maybe we take out age because again, we don't want to be ageist, but sure. is there, is there something or do you just say, you know what? It's in the hands of the electorate. My problem with saying mm. it's just in the hands of the electorate is that we have become in our society so dug in on our political positions that it really doesn't matter who runs. Right. We, we know before, I, right now, each party could name the most offensive person to the other side, but we're so dug in on our politics that we're going to vote for that person no matter what. Of course. And I, I think an aptitude test is something that is already in place for a, a driver's license yeah. in Ontario, right? Like if you're over a certain age, you have to take an aptitude test. I think it's every couple of years to make sure that you're still okay to drive. I think, you know, it doesn't have to be something that is uh, really difficult to pass. It just needs to be something that, okay, this person still has their faculties. Um, by the way, Warren Buffett's 93. Further than I thought, but okay. So an aptitude test and for president though, mm. I would not want the president or the prime minister to be taking the same aptitude test as a driver's license test where you simply have to draw the hands on a clock. Presumably, and that's what it is in Ontario. Yeah. Presumably, I would want them to be able to answer some challenging questions. Name me the leaders of right. these various countries. Name me some things that like you would assume the president or prime minister would know. And if they can't, someone then has to, and I don't know how you do it though. I don't know how you do it. I don't know who the one, mm. as Jen says, I don't know who the person is who comes forward and says, Mr. Whomever, Ms. Whoever, um, you're done. <laughs> I don't know who does that. Maybe the VP? I don't know. The governor general? In, if it was in Canada, the governor general? Yeah, but I mean, they don't really have any power. No, it would have to be a bunch of doctors yeah. who do this mm -hmm. and then tell the governor general that she or he, right now be Mary Simon, have to go to the, pre the prime minister and say, I'm sorry, you are incapable, you are unqualified to... Run for office. I mean, it's it's yeah. such a an awkward you one. Would, but you would think that in Canada, it, that we because we have a much more uh, party led system as opposed to the leader led yes. system that there would be at some point somebody is saying, okay, uh, you know, so and so prime minister. You're going to, we love what you've done for us. We love what you've done for our party, but you need to step aside. And I think they would, but there, I mean, if 
we got to run here for a break, but if Justin Trudeau, who has been the Liberal Party, if Justin Trudeau was 80 now and had led them to these things, would someone say to him, you got to get out of the way? Oh. Maybe. I'm sure people are already telling him to get out of the way. But I'm not necessarily looking, <laughs> I'm not necessarily looking at what the polls are saying today. Mm. If it was four years ago, would you say you've got to get out of the way or would you say, well, he's our best chance to win. We got to run with him. This is our prefab, well, not our prefab, our non-prefab improv roundtable with Jen McQueen and Dave Woodard, our technical, ad our ad hoc technical problems roundtable. I, uh, by the way, I applaud Tom, who is in the booth doing all the technical stuff. Tom has had a, Tom has had a day today because stuff has not worked. So, so golf clap for Tom for, uh, for grinding it out. But, uh, anyway, so, uh, we were talking to Dave and to Jen about a bunch of stuff and this one, Jen, I, I love this story. I don't know if I agree with it, but I love the discussion on this one in India. They have a huge, as everybody I think knows, they have a huge film industry in India, mm -hmm. Bollywood, uh, Bollywood right? and, and mm -hmm. other parts of India, I guess. I, I don't know all the details, but nonetheless, it's a big, big industry. There are suggestions now among some people within the industry that movie reviews should be banned because I guess it makes people think stuff ahead of time. They, they, it's not left to them to decide whether they like the movie. It puts a thought in their mind. And I don't dispute that that happens around here too. Although we have far fewer movie reviewers now because there just aren't that many. Mm -hmm. But whether it's movie reviewing or play reviewing or music review... Would you want to see them banned so you would just entirely make up your mind? Or do you like getting the review and knowing what you're getting into? I don't ever pay attention to a review. So it wouldn't really, you know what I mean? Like I'll go see a movie because the trailer looks good or there's an actor in it that I like. You don't go or, on Rotten Tomatoes ever to no, see on a TV I, show or no, something? No, no, no. Or it's like, you know, have talk with my girlfriends. Okay, what are you guys watching right well, now? Well, that's a what review are you watching? of sorts. Yeah, so I mean, word of mouth, but like yeah. these, you know, professional critics, like I rely on people who I have the same taste with and, you know, check this out, check that out. I mean, I don't, I'm not interested in the, you know. All right. I don't All know, right. fancy, well, it's, you know, artistic and I don't know. Well, I'm see that I'm, stuff up. I agree. But Dave, see, here's the thing, Dave, is I, today, and I think a lot of people probably share this. I don't think I'm unique in this. When we go on a Netflix to watch, say, a series, we've got limited time. I don't want to commit to something that's going to stink. So no. I will go on Rotten Tomatoes or something else. And I kind of like that I have some idea if what I'm getting is good or terrible. Sure. But to be honest, if I'm watching something on Netflix, if I don't like it within the first five minutes, I'm going back and then just scrolling th through all of the movies for the next hour anyway. So it's not, it's not as though, you know, I, I'm committed to it. But if it's going out to a theater, um, I think I... I I do look at the reviews, not necessarily because I think that they're going to change my mind, but just to see what, how people are looking at the movie. I'm also one for spoilers. So sometimes they'll give away a couple of spoilers or what's going on in the, in the, in the movie. So I don't mind reading those. Um, You're a tough audience though. If five mm -hmm. minutes is the cutoff point, my goodness, five minutes is a tough crowd. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that you can tell just from the acting within the first five, 10 minutes, whether it's something that you're going to enjoy or not. And also, yeah, I'm not going to like there, it depends on on what I'm going to go watch the movie for. If it's something that uh, I'm I'm trying to see if it's going to be something that's Oscar worthy, then, of course, I'm going to be looking a, a little bit differently. If I'm just trying to, you know, waste two hours on a Saturday. I don't really care what I watch. Give me Sharknado 7. It'll be fine. <laughs> hey, Sharknado. We had Ian Ziering on the show one time talking oh. about Sharknado. That was that was a great interview. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but no, I mean, like, for example, the Raiders, Jen, the Raiders movie that just came out, the last one, which I can't remember what it was even called, um, but the Indiana Jones, when he yeah. was probably too old to be in politics, based on our last discussion, um, but got terrible reviews. Yeah. But- I went because it was Indiana Jones. It didn't really matter to me what they said, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, so I, I now when I was when you were just saying the Raiders, I'm like, what? What? Oh, Indiana Jones, and like, I think because I don't watch a lot of cable TV, I didn't see any previews for it. I don't think so. I definitely don't even know. I think I might have seen the original one once. Come on, that you've seen Raiders only one time? Yeah, I know. How I many know. times, Dave? Uh, every time it's on TV. Uh huh. Every time it's on TV. Yeah. Same with me. I, I, I've seen it minimum 30 times. <laughs> I've seen that, that German, uh, character get his head just like chewed up in the airplane prop yes. many times. Yes. And, and the guy yeah. with the hand, with the tattoo and his, right. the, the melt with his head melt in with the. I could probably like just word for word go through it. Is it still, when we talk about these things after all these years, 1980 or 81 was Raiders. Is it still a spoiler alert? If you haven't seen it by now, so. I don't think so. Is it a, Jen, is it a spoiler alert? No, because I mean, something like that, I don't mind. Just tell me what, tell me what it's later. about. Yeah, it's fine. I'll still watch it. What, what, it, what is the statute of limitations? What is the cutoff for it no longer to be considered a spoiler alert? How many oh, years? Oh, that's a good, that's a good one. Like maybe, maybe after a year, I think. A year. Oh, okay. I think you're. It's been I out th- for a while. Is that too long? I, I think, think that's not long enough. Not long enough, eh? When it comes to a, when it comes to a movie, I would say Two, when it comes to a television show, I'm a little bit more kind of, if you haven't seen it within like five weeks, sorry. Uh, If you've never seen, if you've never seen the show, but want to see the show, I'll give you some grace. But if you're one of those people that watch the show regularly and say, I haven't watched it, it's been four weeks down the road, you have one week left before I tell you what happened. (laughs) (laughs) He's strict. (laughs) He is strict. I I don't know. Like, so I still think though, that if I, now I don't know what year, let me just type this in because one of the all time, uh, twist endings, uh, the crying game. All right. Came out in 1992. We're talking 31 years. I still believe that if I were to say right now what the twist ending of the crying game was, I would have someone call up and go, you ruined it. (laughs) You, I was going to watch it next week. It was on my agenda. I've never seen the crying game. Well, you don't need to. The Uh, only, the only reference I have to that is when Ace Ventura is doing a spoof in the shower, uh I think. (laughs) Yes. That's, and and it's just playing the song. The Sixth Sense. Well, I don't know what year the Sixth Sense was, but again, if I give away the- Oh, I know what it is. Yeah. Okay. But if I give away the ending of that right now, 1999, yeah. so 24 years, people will... People will complain, but yes. whatever. I don't know. I just, I'd love to know. <laughs> I'd love to know what the statute of limitations on a on a spoiler alert is. I I think it's, I would say almost 10 years. Wow. Be, 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 well, just because there's too many things to You're watch. too kind, now. Scott. Way too kind. You know, I hear that a lot. Um I hear that a lot. It's really, it's, it's, it's rough essentially being the male version of mother Teresa here on the radio. (laughs) Uh, just kindness gurgling out of every pore. 
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.